it might surprise some investors that they're actually one of the top performing sectors uh, this year. Uh, whereas the S&P is, you know, kind of just around up around you know, mid single digits, tech is up 15, 16% as a sector. And, and many, many stocks are even up maybe 50, even 100% from their 52 week lows. Hi again, everybody. Welcome back to another compelling episode of Investing Experts Podcast. I'm your host for today, Rena Sherbel, and I'm excited to have on Julian Lin, who runs two services on Seeking Alpha. One is called Best of Breed Growth Stocks. Julian gets into whether or not the sector is undervalued, what names he likes, how we as investors should be thinking about tech in general and certain names in particular, any of the stocks we discuss today, or perhaps that you think about in the course of our conversation, type the ticker into Seeking Alpha and you will see a whole bunch of analysis as well as all of our compelling news coverage around the stock. Hope you enjoy today's conversation. Julian, welcome to Investing Experts. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Mina. It's great to have you. You know, for those familiar with Julian, uh, they may know Cannabis Growth Investor. And I've talked to Julian a lot about cannabis on the Cannabis Investing Podcast. It's great to talk your other service, Best of Breed, and talk tech today. So super happy to get into it. Um, I'd love it if you shared with listeners where we're at or how you see where we're at in the marketplace and specifically vis-a-vis the tech sector? Yes, it's definitely been a very volatile 2023 and 2022 years. I think, of course, most recently, we saw the turmoil in the banking sector, especially with Silicon Valley Bank, uh, and you know, how cryptocurrencies have been really, some, some, ironically, you know, causing volatility um, and investor confidence in bank stocks and de- deposit bases. But after, you know, very brutal 2020, end of 2021 and 2022 years, the tech sector has been rallying quite a bit. Um, it, it might surprise some investors that they're actually one of the top performing sectors uh, this year, uh, whereas the S&P is, you know, kind of just around up around you know, mid single digits. Uh, tech, tech is up uh 15, 16% as a sector. And and many, many stocks are even up maybe 50, even 100% from their 52-week lows. And part, part of that may be due to hopes that interest rates fall. And I think because of um, that notion, some people might be thinking this is just, you know, um, I think the term is bear market rally, or, you know, they're just thinking that this is a bubble that has not yet fully popped. But I think that kind of take uh, is missing, is, is really missing the underlying fundamental drivers of this rally. What would you say are the fundamental drivers? Before, we, we got to think before when the tech stocks crashed, a lot of that was due to valuation. Uh, a lot of these names, you know, for example, you got a Tulio. Um, one of the names most beaten down and still quite beaten down even after the rally. I, I think that that stock is down still like 80% from the highs. Uh, at one point, that was trading at like 30, 35x sales in spite of, you know, 30%, you know, top line growth. And, you know, it, it's a very, very aggressive valuation multiples that these stocks were trading at the top. But it's also easy to forget why tech stocks traded at a bubble to begin with right they're not not all text most tech stocks they're not meme stocks right we're not talking about like an amc or 
one of those stocks where you, you really wonder why it would have rallied so much, right? These are not stocks that were teetering on the edge of bankruptcy. Uh, tech stocks have very important business model advantages. The most important being the high gross margin and the ability to drive operating leverage. Uh, just to explain that simply, imagine you have one product and you just need to share that product over the cloud with every new customer. So you don't really need to customize the product all too much, or at least it doesn't cost that much to customize the product for every new customer you bring on board. Um, it, it makes it easy to, um, at some point, every new customer is just, uh, it, it just goes all the way down to the bottom line. That That's a very unique, uh, that's a very unique uh, phenomenon that doesn't show up in, for example, uh, the retail or insurance or any other sector. Not, those other sectors might have some operating leverage, but not nearly to the same extent as tech stocks could have. But the thing is that just two years ago, a lot of these tech stocks, they were kind of riding uh, the confidence in that ability to drive operating leverage over the long term, meaning that they didn't really show profits at the time. They were just all the investors, Wall Street, they kind of just took it for granted that, yes, all of these tech stocks will eventually be profitable and very profitable, even if they're not profitable right now. That was that was what we thought two years ago. And right now, uh, after this crash, you know, after pessimism has kicked in, it seems like Wall Street is now of the view that many of these tech stocks will never be profitable in spite of the fact that uh, the tech business model lends itself to operating leverage. Uh, so it, it's just important to remember remember that tech stocks, it's not that they deserve to be trading at bubbles, but they do deserve to trade at a rich or a premium valuation to the broader market because of that ability to drive operating leverage. So where does this come, how, how does this, apply when we're thinking about the current uh, market rally, it's it's very important. So what we've seen over the past six months, the past uh, two quarters is many of these tech companies, some of the best, uh, most many tech companies, in spite of this macro environment, are delivering some very, very impressive uh, improvements in margin. That is, uh, we all know that the economy is a bit shaky after the interest rates have risen so much, right? It's, it's uh, all companies across the market are all trying to reduce costs to deal with inflation, uh, not to mention rising debt costs. And that is having some impact on these tech companies' abilities to drive uh, top-line growth. So a lot of them are projecting some near-term headwinds to their revenue growth rates. You know, they might have been growing at 30 35% you know, before 2022, now there might be guiding for 15 to 25%. It's a big guide down. You would think that's just super bearish, but remember a lot of these tech stocks already dropped 80%, right? So that, that part is more or less priced in. But what, what seemed to have surprised Wall Street was that in spite of that huge headwind to the revenue growth rate, in spite of this tough macro environment, so many tech companies are suddenly guiding for uh, improvements in profit margins. Like some companies are, they, they were previously non-GAAP, uh, not profitable on a non-GAAP basis. And suddenly they're saying, oh, they're gonna be profitable on a non-GAAP basis this year. 
or some companies were only profitable on a non-GAAP basis. And now they're like, oh, we're going to be profitable on a GAAP basis. Or you got some companies starting to you know, give some long-term GAAP guidance. Uh, just to give some examples, uh, Salesforce, uh, one of the more well-known uh, tech names, uh, they laid off 10% of their workforce and increased their uh, their full year profit margin guide and are guiding for 30% non-GAAP operating margins within two years. And then they announced a 20 billion stock repurchase program, right? So you're seeing a lot of these companies uh, starting to address the concerns. You know, the, remember before the previous issue was like, um, tech stocks are amazing. They have this long-term potential, but the only concern is that they were not profitable right now. So you get all these tech companies, suddenly they're addressing that concern square, squarely head on, you know, kind of showing that, yes, even in such a tough environment, we are going to drive um, big improvements in profitability and margin. And that's, that's incredible, right? That, that's, that's not, it's not easy to just um, survive in this current environment, let alone start showing that kind of improvement. And I think Wall Street's beginning to understand and appreciate that 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 notion. It's interesting, you know. As I, as I mentioned at the top, you run two services: best of breed growth stocks and cannabis growth investor, both speaking to growth sectors, at least partly growth sectors. And hearing you speak about what's happening in the tech sector, which is these promises of profitability, changes in guidance. Also, we're seeing a lot of layoffs and Wall Street dealing with. Um, kind of recognizing the difference between what's really happening in front of them and what the promise of what might happen. And then kind of coming to terms with how to analyze these stocks. I'd be interested to hear how you discuss the notion of growth stocks, growth investing, how best to kind of fundamentally analyze these stocks and how much to how much the headwinds play a part in, in the fundamentals. Sure. I guess an easy way to answer that might be just to give an example of maybe how to value such a growth stock. Because I think there's still, especially perhaps especially um, after such you know two years of pain in the tech sector, uh, you, you got a lot of investors losing hope or starting to think that tech stocks are uninvestable and it's still a bubble. They got a they got a crash. Um, I think there there is an important uh, similarity between. The cannabis sector and many tech stocks in that a lot of these tech names still are unprofitable um, at especially on a gap basis right so that could create a challenge to i don't want to say the traditional but we could say conventional uh fundamental analysis where you're trying to value companies on the basis of earnings but how do you do so when a company not only doesn't have much earnings, but they might be unprofitable, right? It, at this point, it's it's very important to to, to circle back to the to the uh, long term business model uh, idea that these tech companies they're creating one product, they have one dev team creating one product that they could sell to every customer. So, over the long term, uh, that the idea is that these tech companies um, they they should be able to achieve a margin profile quite similar to a name like Microsoft. Uh, of course, Microsoft might be a high watermark, but you know, Microsoft um, right now has around you know, 40, 46% gap net margin. It's a, it's a very, very high profit margins. 
And, and the idea is that as these tech companies mature, uh, they will be able to achieve, you know, maybe 20 or 30% net margins over the long term. The, and, and the reason why it's important to view value tech stocks this way is because if you instead value them on the current basis of current earnings, you start getting really wacky growth rates, right, for the earnings, because um, a lot of these tech companies might have like 1% net profit margins or even less. And you start looking at like exponential net income growth for every single year for a decade. Um, it doesn't really make sense, you know, to value a company on the basis of that kind of growth rate, where if you instead assign what you believe to their believe to be their long term margin profile, and then use their long term revenue growth rate, then you could assess um, it, I guess if you're a growth investor, you're, you'll be very familiar with the idea of a PEG ratio. That's like a price to earnings growth ratio. Uh, Peter Lynch, uh, who wrote uh, One Up on Wall Street, he was he made this ratio famous. He said you should buy these stocks when their PEG, PEG ratio is under one times. Um, at this point, this strategy has become so popular that you know one times is kind of too cheap. It's it's like a net net kind of kind of cheapness. Uh, but the idea is. Okay, if you could assign what you believe that uh, to be the company's long-term uh, margin profile, and then compare that with the growth rate, um, you could be able to value these companies very similarly to how you would value any other company. Obviously, there will be that assumption, you know, that you're using the long-term long-term growth rate. So, just just as an example, uh, if we have maybe an Okta, right? Okta Okta is trading at around six x sales. And if we assume that Opta is going to have a long-term net margin in the in the 25% range, you know, over the long term, we could say that it's trading at 24x, you know, long-term earnings power. And then you could compare that 24x earnings ratio with their um their around you know 18% or 20% revenue growth rate. And you see that the PE PEG ratio is around you know, one and a half or less. Then, then we then we could compare that PEG ratio with the broader market, where the broader market PEG ratio might be more around two and a half to three and a half times. And there, there you can see why uh, why many tech investors will view tech, the tech sector as being undervalued on a fundamental basis. You know, across the sector. Speaking to the undervalued part, can you also speak to what's you know we're seeing a lot of headlines about layoffs. And some of these companies, if not being decimated, being uh, broken down a bit. Can you speak to how that plays into how investors should be looking at the sector? Yes. So I think the layoffs are very important. But I think before I say anything good about layoffs, I should start by saying that it's it, it's never it's never good from you know from a society perspective to do layoffs. Um, I, I feel for every employee that has been laid off. So I hope it's clear that any commentary I make, I'm not really supporting people to lose their jobs. It's just more as an investor, how the impact to the stocks from the layoffs. Okay, um, let, let's make that clear. Um, very, very important uh, because sometimes in Wall Street, you could you could hear, um, you know, you could see these companies do these big layoffs and the stock goes up, and then it's kind of cold. It's kind of yeah, kind of sad. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're affected, um, but kind of. From an investor perspective, I think Wall Street is still overlooking the big importance of these layoffs because these layoffs they have big impacts. And I think you could you could look back to 
what happened during the pandemic, right? During the pandemic, there was a lot of a uh, lot of pandemic lockdowns and you know, across the nation, uh, you know, across the world. You can think of a company like Uber, even without pandemic, like uh, even without lockdowns, the social distancing restrictions and the lack of travel made Uber and you know their business model or Lyft even right where their ride-sharing business totally came to a standstill. It was very, very unprofitable. Just to survive Uber and Lyft, they had to do huge, huge layoffs to right-size their cost structure so they didn't burn too much cash while they were waiting for um, the world to recover. But what happened you know, just six, eight months later after they did these layoffs, uh, what we saw was that you know, revenue, their, their business came back started to recover, but they didn't just rehire all those people they laid off. Their cost structure remained lean following that difficult period. And this is very important. So we just talked about how a lot of these tech companies, they're in spite of this tough macro environment, right? Right now we're seeing uh, because of the tough economy, their revenue growth rates, they're decelerating, you know, 1000 basis points or even more. But at the same time, their stock prices are performing strongly, at least over you know the last three to six months, uh, mainly because they have been able to couple um, offset rather offset that revenue new deceleration and growth rates with margin expansion. They, they've been they've been doing a lot of layoffs, uh, just to give not to pick on one company, but to give one example, uh, Meta platforms. Uh, they did two rounds of layoffs. The second round of layoff was of 10,000 people. The first round of layoff was of 13,000 people, employees. And just last November, they had around 82,000 employees. So if you just do a quick estimate, that's, that's around 27% of their workforce. And a lot of these are, are, are very high salary developers, okay? So around 27% of their workforce has been laid off over the past five months, okay? And you could expect that once, you know, this economy improves, let's say one year later, who knows? It's not like the comp, all of these tech companies are just gonna rehire all of those laid off employees. So look, it, it's very interesting. Just, just one or two years ago, um, these tech companies, well, I mean, Meta has always been profitable, but a lot of tech companies were just not profitable. You would have never, you're not worried about profit, or at least a lot of investors thought that they were like that. You know, they they had substantial doubt that these tech companies were not just growing revenues without any profits. You know, that there was that that fear or that um, reservation about tech stocks. But now, what we're seeing is because, especially because of layoffs, and I should mention that um, the. If it, if it isn't clear to to listener, um, all these layoffs again, it's very terrible that these layoffs are happening, but these tech companies, they're able to take advantage of the current macro environment to do the layoffs. And that's also perhaps one reason why you see this huge strength in tech, in the tech sector, even among companies that haven't done that much layoffs yet. Because, I mean, if you kind of think about it, if you were to do these layoffs in a normal environment, you might get a lot of negative press, right? You might get some politicians going, why are you cutting jobs? But if you're to do big layoffs right now, I mean, no one's going to come at you and be like, oh, why did you get rid of so many jobs? Like, I don't see anyone going to meta platforms and asking them why they get, they laid off 28% of their 
workforce. That's a, that's a huge amount, but no one cares because it's a kind of a recessionary environment, right? So it, it's, I mean, it, it's weird to say, but this is very bullish from an investor point of view, uh, you know, because they're able to, a lot of these tech companies, which had been previously investing very heavily in growth or in other words, you know, spending a lot on expenses, they could take this current opportunity to, to accelerate any cost rationalization. It's very similar to what happened during the pandemic where you saw a pull forward in growth in like e-commerce, right? You saw like many years of digital transformation happen within one year during that pandemic just because of necessity. We're gonna see something, we are seeing something similar right now where we're seeing many years of cost rationalization pulled forward in the tech sector because they could, because they could just simply lay them all off. Whereas maybe, maybe they would have not done that, um, you know, if there hadn't been this kind of environment. Maybe they might have just slowed down hiring over the course of the next five to ten years, and had margins expand, you know, one hundred basis points per year. But instead, you're going to see some very, very huge implications to margin. And this is important because imagine what happens when the economy improves. So. The cost structure will stay lower than before, but the revenues will go, might, the revenue growth might accelerate. And these companies, the management teams, they're also going to have this more uh, cost-focused mindset. So they're not going to hire as aggressively as before. So you add the two together, right? You have a lower cost basis. You have our costs expense structure. They're also not gonna hire as aggressively as before. So as revenue growth accelerates, you're going to see greater operating leverage. In other words, you're going to see more margin expansion, significant margin expansion, even beyond what we're going to see right now from the layoffs. It's it's an interesting point, and I agree. You know, it needs a preface that it's it's a bit deflating to think that way, but to to hear your point about companies taking advantage of the macro environment to push these cost saving measures forward. Would you say that that's a reflection of, I mean, I know that you've been speaking about it this whole conversation, but would you point to the fact that it's a change in dynamic, meaning there were these promises of growth, or was it more like bubble-like growth, that they were growing in a way that they were always going to have to snap back to reality, and this is just a good opportunity to do that? So I think there was definitely... Um, especially after the pandemic, a lot of these management teams were taken by surprise by how much of the growth was, you know, an acceleration or a pull forward, you know, how much of it basically was not sustainable. I think a lot, of, especially in e-commerce, uh, a lot of these names, they didn't expect the growth to decelerate this much and this quickly. But I, I do think that a lot of it's just sentiment. Okay. So I think prior to, you know, 2022, 2023, uh, investors in large thought a lot of these tech companies just didn't even know what a profit was or didn't care. They had this view that, oh, these management teams, they, um, uh, and my, my favorite one is that if, if, if gross profits, um, or how, how do you put this? If a company was getting more and more unprofitable, the, the faster they grew, a lot of investors were just concluding that it was a bad business model. Um, which on the surface, it might seem like that, right? It might seem like, oh, why are you losing more money the more revenue you make? But at the same time, it overlooks 
the fact that a lot of companies, they could simply be investing more heavily in R&D with the idea that um, over, over time, they would uh, cut back or pull back from that growth so that they could show more operating leverage. It's like it's kind of like uh, losing money by choice, whereas Wall Street was thinking that they were just losing money by um, structurally flawed business model. But I think that what we're seeing right now is that the sentiment will change because they start to realize that these same management teams, right? You're not, they didn't need an activist investor, even though there has been, you know, activist investing at like Salesforce, but across the sector, you didn't really see activist investors go at these companies to force these uh, layoffs and force these profit, these uh, margin expansion plans. They just happened. These are the same management teams as just two years ago, but suddenly they are actually really focused on margins and really focused and really able to drive margin and expansion, drive profitability. So you're starting to see sentiment shift and this realization like, oh, these not only can these management teams drive aggressive top line growth, but they actually do care about profit margins. So let me ask you, in terms of the top undervalued picks that you have in the sector, what would you what names would you put there? And if you could get, you know, kind of break down their financials a little bit, get into the fundamentals of it a little bit. Yes. So there's two names I could discuss. One would be Meta Platforms and the other would be Sentinel One. Uh, the first one, uh, Meta, uh, I, I just pointed out that they had laid off around, you know, 27% of their workforce, you know, since last November when they first started doing the layoffs. Uh the Meta platform stock is already up over 100% from the lows. Uh, so some might be thinking, oh, this uh, it's expensive at this point. Uh, but I, I'm not really of that view. So the stock is currently trading at around 24 times earnings. Uh, but it's important to note that earnings have gone down over the past uh, two years, mainly because uh, CEO Zuckerberg has been really pushing hard uh, to invest in the metaverse. So like... If you if you were to like assign a zero value to the reality labs, the metaverse business, you know the core, the core uh, social media, you know Instagram, Facebook platforms, it, it it's trading at you know around you know around eighteen times earnings or less. Not to mention this company has around ten percent of its market cap represented in net cash, or I mean maybe it's around seven percent at this point, and. The key point is that, yes, it, it is possible that the stock has been rallying in part due to hopes that TikTok will have a ban in the USA. Uh, per, I mean, I, I'm a bull on meta platforms, but I'm, I'm not very bullish. I don't really think that TikTok will be banned. Um, as an investor, you know, I wouldn't mind it, but I, I'm, not, I'm not as confident maybe as some other uh, pundits on Wall Street on that, on that front. But I think that the stock um, is undervalued, even if TikTok is not banned. I think that Meta platforms, uh, what we saw in the past couple quarters is that they have been able to stabilize their user base and their their growth rates in spite of the TikTok competition, in spite of the macro environment. Uh, this is a company that's been heavily, heavily investing in growth. It, it appears that they have been able to overcome the competitive issues with TikTok. Uh, through innovation. Uh, if you've uh, been using Instagram, I guess one of those innovations would be their ability to recommend new content on your content feed instead of 
only getting content from people you follow. That's definitely been something I've witnessed myself. And, and, and the idea with this is just kind of, if we're talking about simple narratives, it's that the idea is that they laid off 27% of their workforce. You got, finally, finally, we have a management team that's embracing, you know, shareholder value there. And, and they're showing this by uh, investing more, uh, more than 100% of free cash flow towards share of purchases, right? Just maybe five years ago, uh, meta platforms or an alphabet, they, they weren't really repurchasing stocks so meaningfully, but that's that's all changed now. So these, these management teams are very focused on profits and they've already laid off 20, 28% of their workforce. So what happens once the economy recovers, right? You start to get an improvement in revenue growth. You start to, the, all the gains in the profits are still there and the stocks right now trading at um, 24 times earnings and that's inclusive of the losses in the metaverse. And then, and then not to mention what happens when the metaverse business either, you know, starts producing profits or, you know, shut down. So th this is a very, very highly profitable and arguably safe, you know, based on you know, how much profits and um, cash is on their balance sheet uh, pick. Yeah, it trades at, you know, 24 times earnings. Um, I, I would say that if you wanted to make it trade more in line on a growth adjusted basis with some other names, you know, like a, like, like a Walmart or Target, you know, like just a typical S&P 500 names, it deserves at least a 30 times 33x earnings multiple, right? So in, in the meantime, you, get also, you also get a lot of leverage to an improving macro backdrop, you know, as that online advertising improves. Uh, so yeah, Meta Platforms is one of my top picks in spite of the huge bounce from the bottoms. It, it's not every day that you go to buy a, a company, a stock, you know, from a company with secular growth, you know, with, uh, you know, 30, 35% net profit margins, uh, net cash on the balance sheet, and you get to buy it for a sub, you know, a below market multiple, you know, that, that would be why I like meta platforms. Can I ask you while we're still on meta, two questions, a, why do you think that TikTok won't be banned in the U S and B, do you think the focus on the metaverse is, is wrong to focus on and they will pivot? Great. Yeah. So in regards to TikTok, hopefully it doesn't get too political. Um, but like, I mean, so I, I don't, again, I'm, I'm long meta and extra per face. I, I would, I would definitely not mind, you know, if, TikTok was banned. I don't personally use TikTok, so I'm not going to shed any tears on this point. Um, and as a father, you know, I don't know if I want my kid to be playing TikTok in the future. Who knows? Um, but at the same time, you know, I have to acknowledge that. Um, I mean, it, it would be a little bit weird, you know, as an American, if I see um, see this see this happen. You, you know, it's there's there's um, a lot of similarities between. Um, the, I think they call it the Red Scare, or you know, the you know there was a communist scare in 1970s, um, where every, anything related to communism was like really was uh, was really villainized, right? And it's kind of similar now, um, just because. It, I mean, again, I I wouldn't mind you know if it was banned, but if you were to look at the testimony, you know, when the TikTok went to the speak to Congress. A lot of the questions they were asking them actually weren't really issues with TikTok. You know, you could argue that they're also issues with like Facebook or any other American company. But it just the unfortunate thing is that TikTok is associated with China. So they kind of get less 
it's less forgiving, you know, of, of this. Look, so I, I, I can see it's possible, you know, that TikTok gets banned just because from a political perspective, I'm not, I'm not sure that pe people care that much about TikTok, you know, to get that mad, you know, if they were to ban it. Um, it's not like they're the only game in town at worst case, you know, the kids could go to Instagram. It's they, they might, they might get, they might complain, but it's not like you're removing water or something, you know, it's not, it's not terrible, but at the same time, it just doesn't really fit in with American values of freedom of speech. When, when, when I try to judge my base case investment scenarios, I don't, I, I want to go more pessimistic than optimistic. So I don't, I don't think banning TikTok's a slam dunk. And that's why I just don't, you know, model that as, as my base case here. Fair enough. And the focus on the metaverse for meta? What are your thoughts about that? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I have tried the metaverse headset before. Or I think it's the Oculus. I think it was the Oculus 2 at the time. Um, I mean, it was interesting. <laughs> I, I think I, I'm probably the wrong audience because I don't play video games myself. But I could, I mean... I don't know. I Mark Zuckerberg is a very, very, very smart guy, obviously, right? And he's he definitely shouldn't be underestimated. I think at this point, um, there's very little confidence <laughs> from anyone besides him, maybe in the metaverse. I, I, I think there's 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 a great risk that um, it ends up being too early. You know, uh, uh, Howard Marks, the great investor, has said that if being early is just as bad as um, being wrong, right? And I think there's that chance that the metaverse might be, there, there is definitely a risk that the metaverse is going to be sort of similar to how the dot-com bubble was. And that maybe, I mean, there was fraud in the dot-com bubble, but a lot of like really actually good names like Amazon in the dot-com bubble, they were real businesses. They, they were going to do well, you know, if maybe it was 20 years later, but they were just really early. So it's maybe they weren't doing well back then. Metaverse might be very similar, where maybe the world is not ready for for that, and it might we might need to wait, you know, fifteen twenty years before people are more comfortable wearing some random headset and feeling like they're close to other people. You know, I, I don't that that's possible, but I think it's kind of the, the interesting is thing is that in the case of Meta, they were making so much money that even inclusive of you know all of of the. 13 billion, I think they're spending annually on the metaverse. You know, they're still trading at 24 times earnings. And uh, I'm sure many readers have, many listeners have read the book Zero to One, you know, by Peter Thiel, a great tech investor. Uh, he, he mentions how a very clear indication of a monopoly is, and in this case, it's, it's good to be a monopoly because you make a lot of profits, is that you start to invest in these ultra long-term ideas right so when you see uh meta platforms or google you know they're investing in these self-autonomous driving or in this case the metaverse uh it's it, okay i mean there might be ultra long-term views but also indicates just how monopolistic and how how impressive the the profits are so i mean i think i don't know if they'll pivot you know it's really all based on ceo ceo zuckerberg and he has full control. Um, I, I wouldn't say that they're going to stop it anytime soon, but um, I, I would imagine that there is a time limit, you know, <laughs> like, sure, he's, 
he's kind of the chosen one and he has control, but I would imagine within five years at most, you know, the board of directors, the management team, investors will lose some patience. Uh, you can't spend $50 billion without a return. So at some, at some point there will be a resolution there. Yeah. It needs to, uh, even if you change the company name to suit your focus, you still need to pay the piper at some point. You want to talk about the other undervalued names you see in the sector? Yeah, uh, the other name um, actually takes a different view. Uh, it's Sentinel One. The stock ticker is just S. So Sentinel One is a cybersecurity stock. Uh, it's it focuses on the endpoint protection. What what that means is an endpoint is just like a device, like a laptop or something or a phone. It just it just means that Sentinel One helps protect you know that endpoint from you know from hackers and. Uh, cybersecurity is one of the more promising sex subsectors in the tech, you know, the tech sector. Uh, just, just because um, cybersecurity threats, there's some emotional value in it. Uh, there's always this idea that you will never be safe. You know, there's never peace in the world. Uh, I'm not, not trying to get polit political, but cybersecurity is just very important. You always want to be investing with the best. And Sentinel One has been has been doing well as one of the innovators, right? Uh, this is an area where, I mean, if any of you've been using antiviruses, hopefully you have, you're very familiar with names like McAfee or Symantec, you know, or Norton, you know, Norton antivirus. Those are names that have been around for what, 20 years, 30 years. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're not very good. They're not very, you can imagine in the tech, tech world, there's, there's those products that are constantly being improved and heavily invested in, whereas there's also the products that they're just kind of being milked to make maximized profits. So those those old softwares, they're kind of in the latter group, whereas Sentinel One and CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike is the the biggest the biggest uh, new innovator. Also, um, they're the they're they're taking market share very rapidly from the old names just because they're offering a superior product. And nowadays, people are going to be willing to pay pay more, you know, for better cybersecurity protection. And Sentinel One it differentiates itself, or at least claims to differentiate itself by other cybersecurity products, due to its use of artificial intelligence. And okay, they didn't, they they weren't like saying this, you know, after ChatGPT and all of this AI hype. It, it, the idea is that they use artificial intelligence so that they could automatically resolve um, any any threats. Whereas other products, you might have to have a human person uh, analyze the, the, the so-called threat and then resolve it themselves. So that, that's that's the unique feature of Sentinel-1. So, but, the, but what I, I mentioned that Sentinel-1 is different from uh, what we have been discussing earlier. And that's because it's not profitable, not even on a non-gap basis. Not only that, they're not doing any layoffs. Right, so they're, they they've really taken a different uh, a different stance than many other tech companies. They're not taking advantage of the current environment to do any layoffs, in spite of the fact that they are not profitable even on a non-gap basis. But this is a name which I, I think is arguably you could you could say it's more contrarian investing in the tech sector, right? So whereas in tech right now the the, the current investment theme is to be buying these profitable names that are showing margin expansion. 
the contrarian view would be like, oh, but what about the names that aren't doing that, that are still losing a lot of money? Um, those names have become very hated. And Sentinel-1 is, in my view, one of the more undervalued names um, in that respect. So Sentinel-1 is was recently trading hands at around eight times analyzed revenues, but they're guiding for 50% revenue growth this year. And that, that's supposed to be a low mark because of the poor macro environment. So this is one of the, it's a very, very fast growing name, uh, you know, trading 8x sales at 50% growth, just to give an indication, uh, CrowdStrike, CrowdStrike um, is growing at around, you know, 30, 35%, but they trade at more like 13 times or 12x sales, right? So Sentinel-1 is trading at a lower multiple in spite of significant faster growth than many other tech names, largely because largely because um, it's not profitable on a gap basis. The, the company has been delivering 25%, around 25% of margin expansion uh, for many years, and they're kind of guiding to be able to do that. So they're hoping that, you know, within two years or so, they will be uh, generating cash flow and profitable. Um, so, so they're still like focused on profits, but mainly through operating leverage, not through the more direct layoffs and so forth. So Sentinel-1 is more of a valuation pick. This, they, they have this uh, blend of uh, more reasonable valuation, but are still are generating really, really impressive growth rates. And any other stocks you like or any stocks that you would point to that you feel like investors should not be looking at or, or shouldn't be bullish on? I think uh, while the tech sector I view is kind of has been quite undervalued overall. I think the investors still should be very selective within the sector. I there's still you know many stocks that do appear overvalued. Maybe maybe their valuations are not reflecting the risk profile that they are having. Or there, there's also a lot of companies that maybe unlike Meta Platforms or Alphabet because because they're profitable, they might have very rich valuations. I, I would say value. Um, valuation mattered, you know, two years ago before the crash. Valuations matter now, and just because you know a stock is down eighty percent from the high doesn't mean it's cheap at this point. Uh, because maybe they were a lot of these tech names were trading at bubble valuations before, and they might still be trading, you know, at rich valuations now. So th this is an environment in which in which it's a buyer's market. Let's put it that way. And because it's a buyer's market, you don't want to be you want to be very careful with what you buy. You don't you don't want to be buying a stock that isn't actually that cheap. <laughs> because if you were to do that, then once the whole sector recovers, you you might underperform just because you didn't buy you didn't buy a stock that actually is cheap. Anything else that you would share with investors looking looking at the stock market right now, or anything that you think we forgot in in this conversation? I think just on a closing thought, I think that. I think that while tech has has you know definitely borne you know the a, a lot of pain over the past two years, definitely at the, in the beginning you know uh, investors are selling off tech stocks because of rising interest rates or possibilities of a recession. I think we're, we're going to see very quickly that that narrative changes. That because as what we're seeing right now is that a lot of these tech names, in spite of a recession, in spite of you know rising interest rates, they're still showing growth rates that are well above the market average. So in other words, whereas maybe one or two years ago, tech stocks 
had were of the view that oh they should be sold during periods of rising interest rates or they should be sold during periods of recession it's actually going to be the opposite in my view it's people are going to realize that high quality tech stocks they are ideal in times of rising interest rates and ideal in times of a recession just because of their ability to drive strong growth and now now that they're trying to show profits you know and drive margin expansion amidst such a difficult period and it's important as investors to be able to to not get locked down to one view kind of because maybe that view was incorrect right we got to be able to constantly shape our views to and adjust and i think that's going to be the biggest adjustment over the next couple several quarters especially in the tech sector yeah, it's a good place to end it. The only other thing that I wanted to ask you, given your proximity to Silicon Valley and your focus on the tech sector, anything you have to say, um, and it could be that you don't have anything to say, there's been many words spent on this topic, but anything that you have to say about Silicon Valley bank imploding and every the fallout and how that may affect the tech sector in general? So I think um, the, the fallout will be mostly with um, the private tech companies, some of the smaller startups. I, I think that it, it, it might, if there's more volatility, you know, more drama in the future, it may still impact the stock prices anyway, just because that's, that's the nature of it. But from a fundamental financial perspective, tech, tech, I think the larger tech companies will be more insulated from, you know, bank fallouts. You know, a lot of these tech companies, they're not banking with, they weren't banking with Silicon Valley Bank or anything like this. There just wasn't, it doesn't. It doesn't make to. Ha it doesn't make sense to have that many billions of dollars placed there. Uh, but whereas, if you're like a startup tech company, that you know you're burning money and you didn't have that much cash, it made sense to bank there because they might have given you certain perks. So I, I, I would say that um, definitely watch out. You know, for volatility, it might offer some buying opportunities or maybe even selling opportunities if you're still holding on to some loser you didn't want to uh, acknowledge. Um, but I, I'm not I'm not worried on a fundamental basis about this about you know this banking drama affecting at least the tech top tech sector. All right, very good. Well, Julian, thanks for coming on. Always enjoy always enjoy talking to you. One of Seeking Alpha's great analysts. Check out Best of Breed Growth Stocks. Also, don't forget Cannabis Growth Investor, which if you're still interested in the sector, Julian and I have some things to say. And Julian has very strong analysis coming out of that sector as well as the tech sector. So Julian, thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Rina. Just a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast should not be considered investment advice. This is for entertainment purposes only, and you should seek advice from a licensed professional before investing. If you enjoyed the episode, leave a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app, and we'll see you soon with a new episode.